101 Audio Description Introduction 5 Minutes Welcome to the audio description tour of the Henry M. Jackson Memorial Visitor Center at Paradise at Mount Rainier National Park. To begin, let's explore the operation of your audio description receiver and the key features of the Visitor Center. Most visitors use the neck strap to wear their receivers around their necks, with the controls facing their chests for easy access. There are 16 buttons on the receiver. At the top left and right are touchpads that control the volume. Left lowers the volume and right raises it. Between the two touchpads are two round buttons. The upper is the stop button and the lower is the replay button. Pressing either button will stop a description. To start a stopped description or to replay a description that you have just heard, press the lower replay button. Below this are 12 buttons arranged like a telephone keypad in four rows of three buttons. The five key is at the center with raised vertical marks at either side of it. The lower left button where a telephone star key is located and the lower right button, a telephone's pound key, are not used for this audio description tour. You will hear audio description segments in two ways. First, when you approach some exhibits, their descriptions will play automatically. Second, many descriptions will end by telling you how to hear about adjacent exhibits by entering a three-digit number on the keypad. To repeat this introduction or any other descriptions immediately after they have played, simply press the replay button, which again is the second button down from the top of your receiver. You may choose from almost two hours of recorded descriptions of major features of the visitor center. This is not a detailed mobility guide, but descriptions will end by indicating the general location of nearby exhibits. Because of the layout of the exhibits, if you're accompanied by a sighted guide, we recommend that you both listen and move through the exhibits together. The Visitor Center building is 190 feet long from east to west, 60 feet wide from north to south, and two stories tall. The sides of the exterior are carved blocks of mottled gray and white granite speckled with black, and planks of natural wood which weathers to a silver gray. Floor-to-ceiling multi-paned windows trimmed in light green fill most of the north and south sides. The smooth gray metal roof has a steep slope to the north and south from its center peak. Inside, the first floor is an open space, a great hall 50 feet square, open to the steeply pitched ceiling above the second floor. Throughout the building, its triangular wood roof trusses which mirror the roof's slope toward the north and south, as well as many upright rectangular wooden columns are exposed. The wood is a warm golden tan color. Steel beams and metal trim, both black, accent the wood. The frames of the multi-paned windows are the same warm golden tan wood. On the first floor, restrooms, drinking fountains, and telephones are located outside the main entrance in the vestibule to the right. To reach the cafeteria, which is behind the information desk, face the information desk and go along the passageway to the left against the wall of windows. The entrance to a 67-seat theater, which shows a 21-minute video, A Restless Giant, The Ever-Changing Nature of Mount Rainier, is to the right of the information desk. The main exhibits are on the second floor. Before you go to the second floor, you may wish to visit the three-dimensional map of Mount Rainier National Park and the nearby panels of information about planning your visit. 
These are located 50 feet across the Great Hall from the information desk, on the wall with the elevator to the left of the foot of the stairs. Press 102 to hear the description of the map, or 103 to hear the description of the planning panels. If you prefer to go directly to the exhibits on the second floor, turn so the information desk is behind you, and the front wall of the building is in front of you. At the front wall, the stairs are in the corner to your right, and the elevator is to the left. On the second floor, between the top of the stairs and the elevator, you'll find a gift shop and bookstore. Once you're on the second floor, go to the closest corner of the building, straight ahead if you've taken the steps, or to your right if you've taken the elevator, until you hear the first automatic audio description begin. Again, if you want to hear the audio description for the three-dimensional map, press 102. If you want to hear a description of the planning panels, press 103. Or if you want to go directly to the second floor exhibits, the description will begin automatically at the corner close to the elevator. Each audio description segment will end with this tone. 102. Three-dimensional park map. Two and one-quarter minutes. This six-foot square three-dimensional map or topographic relief map of Mount Rainier National Park stands 32 inches off the floor. Its frame base and slanted sides are blonde wood. With the information desk behind you, go to the map's right side. In this position, the front wall of the building is to your right and the information desk is to your left. Here, the slanted side panel has two rows of push buttons, five buttons on the top row and five on the bottom. When you push one of these buttons, white lights illuminate different trails and services on the map. For example, pressing the Wonderland Trail button at the lower right corner illuminates a series of lights to show the trail that encircles Mount Rainier. The majority of the map, the ground and the lower portions of the mountains, is in varying shades of green. The upper portion of the mountain and its surrounding ridges and peaks are gray-brown and large parts of Mount Rainier's peak are white. If you move to the side of the map immediately to your left, so your back is to the information desk, you may be able to touch Mount Rainier. On the wall to your right, five feet from the map, there are three side-by-side wall-mounted information panels to help visitors plan their visit. Together, the panels fill the space 10 feet wide by 7 feet tall, and the bottom of the panels is 2 feet above the floor. To hear about these panels, titled Trails at Paradise, Plan Your Park Visit, and Explore the Region, press 103. If you prefer to go directly to the exhibits on the second floor, turn toward the wall panels, which are mounted on the wall with the elevator, and the stairs will be to your right and the elevator will be to your left. Once you are on the second floor, go to the closest corner of the building, which is straight ahead if you've taken the steps, or to your right if you've taken the elevator, until you hear the first automatic audio description begin. That's 103 for the planning panels, or the second floor description begins automatically at the corner. 103. Planning Your Visit Panels. Two and three quarters minutes. On this wall, three side-by-side wall-mounted information panels fill a space 10 feet wide by 7 feet tall, and the bottom of the panels is 2 feet above the floor. For reference, at the right end of the panels, 2 feet out from the wall, there is a freestanding wooden column. 
The left panel, titled Trails at Paradise, begins with a simple color map of Paradise showing trails. Below, various trails are listed as easy trails, moderate trails, or strenuous trails. From the text on the panel. Breathtaking vistas are abundant at Paradise. Start with an easy or moderate trail. Enjoy! Take plenty of photos, watch for wildlife, and breathe the wonderful air. Remember to leave no trace. Stay on the trails to protect fragile meadow flowers and thin topsoils. Leave what you find. Dispose of waste properly. Be respectful of wildlife and considerate of other visitors. Below, there are three small photos of glaciers and hikers. To the right, the center panel titled Plan Your Park Visit features a large photograph of Paradise Meadow with gold, orange, and red fall vegetation and Mount Rainier in the background. There are also six small photographs of park scenes and a park map. All kinds of beauty. Mount Rainier National Park offers landscapes and habitats of astonishing variety. Explore and enjoy through all the seasons. Know and observe principles of safe recreation. Stay for a day or a week. Come here often to experience the mountain at different seasons. Hike for an hour or a day. Experience a mountain evening in a campground or lodge. Get off the beaten track. Register for your wilderness permit, then take an overnight backpacking trip. Deepen your understanding. Participate in a guided hike, campfire talk, or junior ranger program. Learn winter safety rules before venturing out in the snow. They could save your life. To the right, the third and final panel titled Explore the Region begins with a large map of Washington marked with nearby points of interest. Gifford Pinchot National Forest, Pacific Crest National Scenic Trail, Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest, and Wenatchee National Forest have brief descriptions accompanied by small scenic photos. If you are ready to explore the exhibits on the second floor, the stairs are to the right and the elevator is to the left. Once you are on the second floor, go to the closest corner of the building, which is straight ahead if you've taken the steps, or to your right if you've taken the elevator. At the corner, the audio description will begin automatically. 104. The view of Mount Rainier from the second floor windows, 5 and 3 quarters minutes. The second floor's north wall has eight alcoves of almost floor-to-ceiling windows, each with a similar view of Mount Rainier. Each alcove, 10 feet wide by 3 feet deep, has a pair of 7.5 foot tall by 4 foot wide windows, each divided into 16 panes. Mount Rainier rises to its highest point 5 miles from the visitor center. At the left side of the mountain, there are two rounded peaks or volcanic craters, each over 1,000 feet in diameter, the left higher than the right, and then a square-edged ledge lower still to the right. This expanse of the mountain from left to right is approximately two miles wide. Beyond the crest, Mazama Ridge slopes lower and continues out of view to the right. From an outdoor exhibit panel. Volcanic activity began in this region about 37 million years ago. Mount Rainier took shape just 500,000 years ago. Lava eruptions built up the mountain several times to 16,000 feet or more. Glaciers and huge landslides worked to erode it away. Today, on the left peak, the summit or highest point of Mount Rainier, the elevation is 14,410 feet. Below the peaks, 
Ridges, glaciers, and snowfields slope down to the meadow in the foreground of this view. The appearance of Mount Rainier changes with the weather and with the seasons. No matter the time of year, the mountain may be partially or totally hidden by clouds. The progression of seasonal changes varies from year to year. Depending on the amount of fall and winter snowfall, how late the snow stays on the ground in spring and summer, and so forth. Nevertheless, Mount Rainier has 34 square miles of permanent snow fields and glaciers. The snow at Mount Rainier begins to melt in the spring, and summer is typically from late June or even early July through August or mid-September. In summer, just below the mountain's tree line, the rolling hills, which are subalpine meadows, are covered with bushy green huckleberry plants. The plants are about two feet in diameter and one and one-half feet tall and grow in thickets of several plants, about six to eight feet in diameter. Wildflowers also start to appear. As summer progresses, they move through a range of colors, blue and violet, yellow, brown and green, red and pink, and white. At peak season, normally late July or early August, their mixed colors blanket the meadows. Outside the visitor center, to the right in the view from these windows, wide stone steps rise from the plaza to meet a paved path to the upper meadows. Interspersed with the meadowlands and up to the mountain's tree line, slender, spire-like subalpine fir trees grow in islands or clusters. These shaggy evergreens may be as tall as 90 feet, as narrow as one foot in diameter at the top and two feet at the bottom. Above the tree line, wide, craggy, gray-brown lava ridges course down the mountainside. Early in summer, the rugged glaciers, frozen rivers of ice, are coated with snow. In places, the glacial ice appears blue. The roughest parts of the glaciers are the deep open cracks, crevasses, and ice falls. Later, as rain and heat cause snow to melt, the glaciers, streaked with rocks and debris they've gathered flowing downhill, look dirty, and all but the peaks of the upper mountain are brown. The Nisqually Glacier, one of more than two dozen glaciers on Mount Rainier, is at the center of this view. The glacier is five miles long by one-third mile wide and averages 200 to 300 feet thick. To its right, the year-round, irregularly shaped Muir snowfield at about 10,000 feet is two miles long by one-quarter mile wide. Typically in late August or mid-September and extending to late October, the huckleberry plants turn orange and red. Snow usually begins in late October or November. The meadows fill with snow, and as winter continues, the snow gets deeper. During most of the winter, everything is white except the exposed tops of the tallest trees. When the snow in the meadow is deep, people sled and slide on the hill immediately above the visitor center using inner tubes and saucers. Snowfall often continues into April or May. Spring comes to Mount Rainier when the snow stops falling and begins melting. By June, it looks like spring because green vegetation and wildflowers start to appear in the meadows. From the Snows of Paradise wall panel in the vestibule downstairs, just outside the main entrance. It's hard to imagine in summer, but more snow falls at Paradise than any place else in the lower 48 states. Snowdrifts can pile up as high as the third floor of Paradise Inn. At the time of this recording, the Paradise record high snowfall is 1,122 inches in the winter of 1971-1972, and the record low is 313 inches 
in the winter of 1939-1940. The average snowfall at Paradise is 680 inches or 57 feet. The panel in the vestibule provides current measurements for this year. To explore the exhibits, continue 75 feet along the walkway, about three-quarters of the way toward the next corner of the building. Before the corner, you will reach the Glacier's Come and Go exhibit on the right, and the automatic audio description will begin. 105. Building Blocks of Glaciers. Four Minutes. On the left wall of this window alcove, a text panel with a large photograph of Nisqually Glacier introduces this exhibit. Huge snowfalls pile up on Mount Rainier's slopes throughout the year. The weight and pressure of the snowpack create layers of compacted snow. If the temperature is too cold for the snow to melt, compacted layers may recrystallize into a hard, dense material called fern, and then into ice. Mount Rainier has more glacial ice and year-round snow than all other Cascade volcanoes combined. The alcove houses an 8-foot-long table with a 2 three-quarters foot deep slanted top, its front edge 2 one-half feet above the floor. The left half of the tabletop has a metal kaleidoscope that shows a variety of snowflake patterns and a book with plasticized pages that tells the story of how huge glaciers are created from tiny snowflakes. Each page contains text and a photo of a Mount Rainier landscape, a single snowflake, mountain climbers, an avalanche, or snow removal at Paradise. When water vapor freezes, it forms snow crystals. Each snowflake is 10% ice and 90% air. Differences in temperature, humidity, and wind make each crystal unique. Yet, each one is six-sided or hexagonal. Mount Rainier is covered by some 34 square miles of year-round snow and ice. Scientists use a big stick like a ruler to measure the amount of snowfall at Paradise. A marker by the front door of this visitor center shows the record high, record low, and this year's snowfall. How does snow become ice and form a glacier? More snow falls than can melt away. As snow piles up, the weight of the snowpack squeezes air out of the lower layers. First, the compacted snow crystals start to break down. Then they recrystallize, forming an entirely different kind of snow. Avalanche. A layer of dry powder may slide off an underlying layer of wet snow. A slab of heavy snow may fall down a steep slope, pulled by its own weight. Take avalanche warnings seriously. Avalanches have killed people on Mount Rainier. Snow removal is a big job at Paradise. The snowpack creeps downhill. Its weight can move an entire building off its foundation. Snowplows and innovative architectural designs help people cope with snow at Paradise. The right half of the tabletop features a recessed 9-inch by 12-inch video monitor on the left side, and at the right back corner, a slightly larger monitor standing above the table, which displays the same image. Glacier Zoom. Zoom in on a glacier. Near the right edge of the tabletop, there's a turning wheel 6 inches in diameter, Turning the wheel changes the image on the monitors from high above Mount Rainier to descending the mountain, to a glacial landscape, to atop a glacier, and then to crystalline layers of compacted snow and ice. From here, the next exhibit is behind you and six feet on the right. To hear about the exhibit, a game called Race Against Time, which shows how different plants respond to the same environmental conditions, press 106. 
If you would prefer to go directly to the exhibit after that, the glass-enclosed Meadowlands diorama, go back along this wall to the third window alcove, the alcove just past the first glacier exhibit, 25 feet from here. The Meadowlands diorama is directly across the 8-foot wide aisle, and its description will begin to play automatically. That's 106 for the Race Against Time game, or the Meadowlands diorama description will play automatically. 106 Race Against Time game, 2 and 1 quarter minutes. On the wall above the exhibit hangs a large sign with the name Race Against Time and the instructions for playing the game on the table below. The table is 10 feet long, 2 and 1 half feet deep, and 2 and 1 half feet tall. At the center of the table is a black plastic wheel, like a roulette wheel, 24 inches in diameter. All the way around, the notches on the side of the wheel are marked with black on white alternating numbers, 1, 2, 1, 2, etc. To the left and right of the wheel, each side of the table has a pair of 3-foot-long black metal rods that stand up 3 inches above the tabletop and squiggle in wavy lines from left to right. Each metal rod is threaded with a round red wooden ring, one and three quarters inches in diameter and one half inch thick. Printed on the side portions of the tabletop are the names of four plants, Mountain Bog Gentian, Spring Beauty, Glacier Lily, and Black Alpine Sedge, each corresponding to the far end of one of the wavy rods. Under the rods, at the crook of each curve, is information about options for the plant's advancement through the steps to grow, flower, pollinate, and produce seed. Players spin a 1 or a 2 and move their markers according to the matching option. Find out firsthand what tasks meadow flowers at Paradise must accomplish during their short six-week growing season. As an example, if one plays the Spring Beauty at the front left of the table, with good luck, one could move through the steps to sprout, grow, flower, pollinate, and produce seed. With bad luck along the way, however, a hiker might pick the flower, or the flower might fail to attract a pollinator, and either would end the chance to survive and reproduce. The next exhibit is the glass-enclosed Meadowlands Diorama. Go past the right edge of the game's wheel, turn so the wheel is behind you, and go 25 feet across the open space. As you move to the diorama, you will pass two freestanding wooden columns on your right. The Meadowlands Diorama description will begin to play automatically. 107. Natural Networks. Two and three quarters minutes. Nearly 1,000 plant and animal species have been identified in Mount Rainier National Park. The loss of a single flower population could be catastrophic for pollinators that feed on that species alone. The disappearance of an insect or hummingbird species could doom plant populations that rely only on that pollinator. In summer, marmots feast on grasses and herbs and sun themselves on rocks. They need to accumulate body fat for their long winter sleep. Keep your ears open in the meadows. If you hear a loud whistle, look for a marmot. You've just heard its alarm call. When the smaller pika is alarmed, it lets out a squeak. The two calls sound very different. During hibernation, winter sleep, a marmot's heart beats only four or five times per minute. 
its body temperature is only a few degrees above freezing. With greatly reduced energy needs, the marmot can stay alive until spring. Hawks and other predators search constantly for their next meal. Marmots protect themselves by freezing every 30 seconds or so. This makes them harder to spot from above. Snowshoe hares are brown in the summer, a good match with subalpine terrain. When winter comes, they lose their brown fur and grow a white coat, blending in with the snow. Subalpine trees grow slowly. They are bent and twisted by ice and wind. These small, contorted trees provide vital shelter and shade for smaller meadow plants. Pikas spend much of the summer cutting and drying grass. They store the dried grass in underground dens where they will spend the winter. By nibbling away at their food stash, supplemented by bark and lichen they may find under the snow, they sustain themselves until spring. Scientists are continually making new discoveries about animals, plants, and ecosystems in subalpine meadows. This knowledge guides efforts by Mount Rainier National Park to preserve the meadows for future generations. To visit the next exhibit to learn more about the meadows and tree islands at Paradise, go to the right and behind the Meadowlands diorama until you reach the left end of a curved table. When you are ready, press 108 to begin the description of the first of a series of four related exhibits which extend along the 18-foot length of the curved table. If you would prefer to go directly to the next major exhibit after this series of four exhibits, go to the right edge of the Meadowlands diorama and then move two more feet to the right, just past the freestanding wooden column. Go forward across the 12-foot aisle to the On Top of the World exhibit and press 112 to hear its description. That's 108 to hear about the exhibit behind this one, or if you go directly to the next exhibit, On Top of the World, press 112 to hear its description. 108. Subalpine Meadow Flowers. Two and one quarter minutes. Recessed near the left end of this 18-foot-long curved table is a bin which holds a dozen tab-topped, 11-inch-wide by 8-and-one-half-inch-tall cards with photographs and text about Paradise Meadow plants and restoration efforts. The first card, featuring a photograph of a meadow of colorful flowers in the foreground and the Tatouche Range in the background, reads... Paradise Meadow, and abundance of plants. How many of these Paradise Meadow plants have you seen? How many can you name? Each following card pictures a plant or a scene of rehabilitation work in the meadow and text. For example, the third card shows dense clusters of tiny star-shaped yellow flowers with dark green leaves. Its text reads, Fan leaf sinkfoil. These tiny plants are among the first meadow flowers to appear in great numbers. They form a beautiful blanket of yellow. On the fifth card, a white pinwheel-shaped flower with six petals and a yellow center. Avalanche lily. This early bloomer sends a shoot up through the snow. The tenth card shows a low barrier of stacked rocks blocking the way to a damaged meadow, which has been replanted. The last or twelfth card... After several people have stepped on a plant, it is likely to die. When people stray off the path, they compact the soil. Replanting the meadows is a year-round challenge for park staff and volunteers. A long line of hikers on a trail. The success of meadow restoration depends on you. As you explore the meadows, stay on the paths to avoid walking on plants and soil. Never pick flowers at paradise. Leave them for others to enjoy and allow plants to reproduce the natural way. The next portion of this exhibit, 
about the meadows and trees at Paradise, is immediately to the right on the same curved table. Press 109 to hear its description. If you would prefer to leave this series of four exhibits and go directly to the next major exhibit, turn around and go behind you, across the six-foot aisle, to the On Top of the World exhibit, and press 112 to hear its description. That's 109 for Meadows and Trees, or 112 for On Top of the World. 109. Meadows or Tree Islands. Two minutes. Printed on the tabletop. Paradise? The road from Longmire winds through miles of forest. Here at Paradise, colorful flower meadows are interspersed with islands of subalpine fir and mountain hemlock. Some of these trees are stunted and bent in Krumholtz formation. Why this sudden, very noticeable difference in terrain? To the right, there are two side-by-side panels, 12 inches wide by 15 inches tall, hinged to the table at their backs, each printed with a photograph and a question. Meadows or tree islands? Lift to find out what factors shape the mosaic of meadows and forest at Paradise. On the panel at the left, a photo of the Paradise Meadow full of colorful wildflowers with the question, why are there meadows at Paradise? When you lift the panel, this is the answer printed on the tabletop. Meadow plants at Paradise are better adapted than trees to long winters, deep snows, and a short growing season. At this elevation, slow-growing trees don't shade out the meadow flowers. Flowers grow most abundantly on south and west-facing slopes. On the panel at the right, a photo of narrow, tapered subalpine firs growing in groups with the question, why do trees grow in island-like clusters at Paradise? When you lift the panel, this is the answer. With their two-month growing season, trees do best on ridges and hills, where the snow melts first. Trees are most likely to take root in areas where shrubs and other trees are already established. Such places may be a bit warmer than their surroundings. Or they may harbor mycorrhizal fungi that benefit both shrubs and trees. The next portion of this exhibit, called Made for Each Other, Demonstrating the meadow's complex system of plant and pollinator adaptations is on the deeper tabletop just beyond the right end of this section. Once you move there, press 110 to hear its description. 110, made for each other. Three minutes. This matching game has two parts. On the wall, a panel six feet wide by five feet tall with a black plexiglass rectangle in the middle. And in front of this, a gray tabletop, four feet wide by two and one half feet deep. The growing season at Paradise is very short. Plants have only a limited time to attract pollinators. As insects and birds move through the meadows, they transfer pollen among the flowers they visit. Some pollinators are attracted by flowers' colors, patterns, and shapes. Others are drawn to certain fragrances. Some plants don't have to compete for pollinators. They rely on wind to transport their pollen. Pollination is a vital process that promotes genetic diversity within species. On the back panel, along the left side, one above the other, are the names of six pollinators, a brief explanation of what attracts them, and close-up photos of each of them. Along the right side are a matching set of names, explanations, and photos of plants. The gray tabletop is divided vertically into three sections, by a one-foot-wide tan strip down its center. 
The left section repeats the list of six pollinators, while the right section lists the six plants. On either side of the tan strip, a white button is next to each of the 12 possible matches. Select a type of pollinator by pressing one of the buttons on the left. Then select a flower adapted to attract that pollinator by pressing one of the buttons on the right. When a player makes a correct match, a dotted line of white lights appears on the wall's black plexiglass to connect the related names and photos. At the bottom of the table's tan stripe, a small black plexiglass window shows the word correct at the top of the window. For example, bumblebees, the top button on the left, are drawn by fragrance, so they match lupin, the fourth from the top on the right, which smells good to certain insects. Hummingbirds, the third button on the left, are attracted to red flowers, so they match paintbrush, the fifth button on the right, which is a colorful attractor. Butterflies, the fourth button on the left, like perfumey aromas, so they are drawn to buckwheat, which has a distinctive odor, the last or sixth button on the right. The moth, the fifth button on the left, which feeds at night and is attracted to white blooms, matches Sitka valerian, whose color shows up in the dark, the second button on the right. When the two pressed buttons do not make a match, no dotted line appears, and the table's window shows the word incorrect at the bottom of the window. The next portion of this exhibit, called Snowed Under, showing how animals and plants adapt to winter conditions at Paradise, is on a four-foot-long section of the curved tabletop just beyond the right edge of this game. Once you move there, press 111 to hear its description. 111. Snowed Under. Two and one-quarter minutes. On this curved four-foot-long section of the table, there are four connected photographs, each nine inches wide by 12 inches tall, standing upright, arranged in a zigzag pattern like the pleated folds of an accordion. A question is printed on the table in front of each photo. At the center front of the table, there's a three and one-half inch tall brass button, two inches in diameter. When you push the button, behind the photos, a black panel rises five inches to show the answers. At the left end, the first photo shows snow-covered evergreens at Paradise. How do trees survive despite chilling winter winds and deep snows? Answer. Snow buries the trees, insulating them from winter's freezing temperatures and icy winds. As the snowpack thins in spring, the trees break free and begin their brief season of growth. The next photo shows a curled-up red fox. How do foxes spend the winter months? Answer. Foxes are active all year. They usually hunt at night. Winter is mating season for foxes. Together the pair settle into a den where they will raise their cubs. They may dig their own or modify an abandoned burrow. A fox den may be as long as 75 feet with several entries. In the next photo, snow surrounds a glacier lily, a yellow pinwheel-shaped flower with six petals and yellow center. How do glacier lilies grow underneath the snow? Answer. A blanket of snow keeps the soil temperature above freezing throughout the winter. The lily begins growing at its bulb tip in September. By snowmelt, its shoot is close to the soil surface. The last photo, at the right end, shows a gray-white snowshoe hare, its long ears standing straight up. How do snowshoe hares protect themselves from predators in winter? Answer. Their fur turns white, 
making them harder to spot against a snowy background. To go to the next exhibit, go back to the left end of this long curved table to face the bin of subalpine meadow flowers. On top of the world will be just behind you, across a six-foot aisle. Once you move there, press 112 to hear its description. 112, on top of the world, two and one-quarter minutes. To the left, there's a 20-foot-tall, touchable, smooth-coated fiberglass replica of a small portion of a glacier. Its color is many variations of white, with a few light streaks of blue and gray, and it's shiny like ice. Near the top, out of reach, jagged icicles hang over the irregularly shaped display wall that's to the right. On top of the ice, a mountain climber stands sideways, facing toward the wall with the elevator and stairs. The climber's left foot is angled, standing on a slightly higher chunk of ice. The climber is dressed in dark blue and black, insulated jacket and pants, helmet, full face mask, goggles, gloves, and backpack. From this angle, the feet are unseen. The right hand holds a loose red climbing rope that's threaded through a piton or round eye bolt attached to the ice peak. The left hand holds an ice axe. The straps of a climbing harness are strapped around the waist and thighs. Four photographs, three of modern climbers and one of tiny white phlox blossoms, surround this text. People who climb as far as Mount Rainier's summit find themselves inside a massive crater. They can warm themselves by sitting near steam vents if they can stand the rotten egg sulfuric smell. A landscape of ice and snow is crisscrossed by melted passageways. There's even a lake underneath the ice. Climbers cannot survive the summit's bitter cold and screaming winds for long. Only the hardiest algaes and lichens can grow in ice and snow. But for a surprising variety of animal species, the high alpine zone is home, or at least familiar territory. Discover unique adaptations that enable these mountain dwellers to flourish in extreme conditions. When you're ready to continue with the next display wall about mountain dwellers, move to the right and the description will play automatically. If you would prefer to move ahead to the next major exhibit, turn to the right and go 18 feet toward the nearest wall of the building, stopping in front of the Shelter from the Storm exhibit, where the description will begin to play automatically. The description for mountain dwellers, or for Shelter from the Storm, will play automatically. 113. Lichen. 2 minutes. The irregularly shaped display wall is set back about 9 inches from the previous one. In the space between the two walls, a shiny bright blue background displays three small photos of yellow-green, gray, and burnt-orange lichen, a flat, crusty, branching plant growth on rocks. On the floor at the base of the wall, the top of a three-foot-tall gray rock bears yellow-green jewel lichen at the left and burnt-orange dust lichen at the right. A magnifying glass, six and one-half inches in diameter, is mounted above each sample, four inches above the rock's surface. Amid ice and snow, lichens take hold and grow on rocky outcrops and boulders. Over a very long time, they break the rock down into soil. Lichens only need a little water and minimal nutrients to grow. They tolerate shade, intense sun, and extremes of heat and cold. Look for jewel lichen on rock piles where pikas and marmots may have fertilized it with their urine. 
To the left, a jagged cutout plexiglass window reveals a plump gray bird with a blue and black head and yellow beak, six inches from beak to tail, sitting on a grass nest of four gray eggs, each one inch long. High up on the mountain, gray-crowned rosy finches feed on dead insects blown in by the wind. They nest in rock crevices further down the mountain and forage for seeds, white heather flowers, and saxifrage leaves. When you're ready to continue with the next display wall about springtails, immediately next to this, move to the right and press 114. If you would prefer to move ahead to the next major exhibit, turn to the right and go 12 feet toward the wall of the building, stopping in front of the Shelter from the Storm exhibit, where the description will begin to play automatically. That's 114 for springtails, or the description of the Shelter from the Storm exhibit will play automatically. 114, Springtails, 1 and 3 quarters minutes. The irregularly shaped display wall is set back 9 inches from the previous one. In the space between the two walls, a shiny bright blue background displays three small photos of a snow flea, a harvest man spider, and a snow worm. The display wall features drawings of 11 light green springtails, wingless insects with curved narrow bodies jumping and springing up the wall in curved arcs, their path marked by dotted lines. In the drawings, the springtails are two inches long, although the actual insects are much smaller. Springtails are tiny, but they play a big role in alpine ecosystems. They break down debris and organic matter and recycle nutrients, keeping the soil productive. The next irregularly shaped display wall to the right is set back nine inches from the previous one. On the wall at the left, four feet above the floor, a jagged plexiglass window reveals a brown spider-like creature with angled, tall, thin legs standing on a tan rock. Harvestmen forage on glaciers and snowfields in search of wind-blown pollen, fungi, and dead insects. To the right of the window. Just visiting. These animals are rare, occasional, or infrequent visitors to the mountain's highest slopes. Below, photographs top to bottom of a porcupine, a small black bear, and a horned lark, a small sparrow-like bird with a light brown back, patches of black on its chest and face, an off-white chest and throat, and two black horns of feathers at either side of its head. When you're ready to continue with the next display wall, ask an ecologist immediately next to this, move to the right and press 115. 115, Ask an Ecologist, 3 and 3 quarters minutes. The irregularly shaped display wall bears the title Ask an Ecologist, Nature Up Close and Personal, and a grouping of a worn ice axe, magnifying glass with a wooden handle, old-fashioned black binoculars, and a yellow weatherproof notebook. Below this, displayed upright on a stand, an open book with six plasticized pages, each 17 inches wide by 30 inches tall. The book's cream-colored pages have dark brown line drawings and text. The first page, which is permanently attached to the left inside front cover of the book, is a drawing of a marmot and this text. What do park ecologists do? Ecologists are scientists who study living things and their environment. They are responsible for monitoring and protecting the park's plants, animals, and other natural resources. The facing page has drawings of a bat and an owl and this text. What endangered and threatened species are found in Mount Rainier National Park or could live in this habitat? 
the gray wolf is endangered. Threatened species include grizzly bear, Canada lynx, northern spotted owl, Chinook salmon, and bull trout Dolly Varden. Many of these species have not been seen in the park for decades. How do ecologists count the number of members of a species living in the park? A park ecologist recently surveyed bat populations in Mount Rainier National Park. Using computerized maps and data, the ecologist and a geographic information specialist located examples of these habitats in the park. Then they estimated the numbers of various bat species within each plot by recording their vocalizations. Now turn the page so the left page features a drawing of five men and women working to restore damaged meadows and this text. How do scientists monitor people's effects on the park environment? Sometimes people make an alternate trail that parallels or crosses a main trail through the meadows. Ecologists call this a social trail. By mapping the trail and monitoring it over time, park scientists can watch to see if the trail gets bigger or smaller. The facing page has a drawing of a spotted bobcat and this text. How do scientists observe animals that are shy and secretive? Many of the park's meat-eating mammals, carnivores, are seldom seen by people. To find out which species can be found in the park, scientists hiked, skied, and snowshoed deep into the woods. There, they set up remote camera stations. They baited a wire basket with smelly chickens or skunks and hung it on a tree. By investigating the intriguing stink, the animals interrupted an infrared laser beam that signaled to the camera. Now turn the page so the left page has a drawing of a skunk and this text. Which carnivores were captured on film? The gallery of photos includes such species as pine marten, red fox, bobcat, and coyote. A spotted skunk, not documented in the park since 1922, was a surprise visitor. The camera also recorded the unexpected visit of a golden eagle. The facing page, which is permanently attached to the inside back cover of the book, has a drawing of a cougar and this text. What should you do if you meet a cougar on the trail? Don't run. If you do, you'll look like prey. If you encounter a cougar, stand still and face the animal. Immediately pick up and hold small children. Stand tall. Open your jacket to make yourself look bigger. Shout and make noise. If you're attacked, fight back aggressively. When you're ready to continue with the next display wall, Weathermaker, move to the right and press 116. 116, Weathermaker, 3 and 3 quarters minutes. Mount Rainier is so tall and massive that it creates its own weather conditions. As moist air flows eastward from the Pacific Ocean, the barrier of the Cascade Range stimulates rainfall on the west side of the mountains. Mount Rainier's extraordinary height, 14,410 feet, magnifies this effect. Longmire gets 87 inches of precipitation in an average year. Paradise snowfalls have set records for the lower 48 states. Be alert. Weather conditions can change very quickly on Mount Rainier. Be prepared. Staying warm and dry is vital to survival anywhere on this mountain. For travel on snow or glaciers, carry additional gear, including an avalanche transceiver and shovel. Avoid steep gullies and steep open slopes where avalanches are most likely. If an avalanche occurs, hurry to one side of the slope. Storms can come on unexpectedly and quickly at Mount Rainier. If it begins to rain or snow, put on your rain gear right away. Avoid snowfields and glaciers where travel is dangerous and navigation is extremely difficult. 
At the left of this display wall, a map of Mount Rainier National Park has push buttons at five different areas of the park. At the right, a video monitor which shows a time-lapse version of a year's worth of weather at Paradise. When you push a button on the map, the video monitor displays a photo and text to show how the mountain's influence affects that area. This is the information for each of the locations. Mount Rainier Summit, Columbia Crest. Elevation, 14,410 feet, 4,392 meters. The air at the summit of Mount Rainier is noticeably colder and relatively drier than on its mid-level slopes. Hence, less snow falls at the summit than at Paradise and other mid-mountain locations. Paradise, elevation 5,400 feet, 1,647 meters. The Paradise area lies on the wetter side of Mount Rainier and also within the park's zone of heaviest snowfall, between 5,000 and 8,000 feet in elevation. As a result, Paradise is consistently one of the snowiest places in the lower 48 states, with an average annual snowfall of over 680 inches, nearly 57 feet. Sunrise, elevation 6,400 feet, 1,950 meters. The sunrise area lies within the rain shadow of Mount Rainier. Sunrise receives less rain and snowfall than Paradise, and the meadows at sunrise are not as thickly covered with subalpine plants. Carbon River, elevation 1,880 feet, 573 meters. The Carbon River Valley receives abundant rainfall and much less snow than other areas of the park. This is due to its low elevation, plus its location on the wetter side of Mount Rainier. These conditions combine to create a temperate rainforest-like environment, with large evergreen trees towering over a dense, lush undergrowth of ferns, mosses, and other lowland forest plants. Ohanapakash, elevation 1,900 feet, 579 meters. The Ohanapakash area sits in a deep valley between Mount Rainier and the crest of the Cascade Mountains. Its low elevation and wet environment allows magnificent stands of old-growth forests to grow throughout the area. To go to the next exhibit, go back to the big Ask an Ecologist book, turn around, and go across the six-foot aisle to the above-tree-line glass-enclosed diorama. Go five feet to your right to the Shelter from the Storm display at the right end of that group of exhibits where the description will begin to play automatically. 117, above treeline diorama, four minutes. Behind us as we face the diorama, an overhead speaker plays sounds of birds and other animals. A 16-foot tall by 24-foot wide photograph of Mount Rainier dominates the wall behind the diorama and the exhibits on either side of it. The snow-covered peak gives way to the gray-brown mountainside that's partly covered with snow. Dark green, tall, slim, subalpine firs grow in islands or clusters at the tree line. In places, craggy white glaciers flow down the mountain. In front of the background photo, an 8-foot wide, 4-foot deep, 6-foot tall glass-enclosed diorama shows a scene above Mount Rainier's tree line. Making do with less. Above the flower meadows and stunted trees of paradise, conditions become even more extreme. Plants must obtain and retain water and heat despite freezing temperatures, strong winds, and unfiltered sunlight. Animals must find food and keep themselves safe from predators in a landscape that offers little in the way of shelter or protection. Each species that lives in the alpine zone is adapted to survive and even thrive there. 
Some have built-in structure or behavior that allows them to take advantage of the unique alpine conditions. The floor of the diorama is covered with small rounded rocks, rocky soil, and starting at the back left corner and spreading forward into the center, a patch of snow several inches thick fills about half the ground. The ground that's not covered with snow has bits of alpine plants in low clustered mats of white, pink, blue, yellow, and rust. Small birds, animals, and insects are distributed throughout the scene. At far left, in front of the snow patch, a rosy finch faces forward, a plump gray bird with a bluish gray and yellow beak, about six inches from its beak to its tail. A vole, a four-inch long rodent resembling a mouse, sits to the right. Toward the center, in front of the snow patch, another medium-sized bird stands sideways, facing left, about five and one-half inches long, with lightly streaked gray-brown upper parts, lightly streaked breast and underside, and a long, slender black bill. Farther right, standing on the snow patch, a ptarmigan, a bird with a pigeon-like body, faces toward the right. The ptarmigan's body is covered with feathers in a tiny, scalloped pattern of brown and white, while its tail, legs, and toes have white feathers. At the far right, at the back, sits a pika, a small guinea pig-like animal with short limbs and rounded ears. At the front, a four-inch long mouse faces forward, its back brown and white underneath, large prominent ears, and big dark eyes. Two insects also appear in the diorama, a harvestman spider, sometimes called daddy longlegs, and a wolf spider. On top of the wall behind us, the wall labeled Ask an Ecologist, a mountain goat stands looking toward the wall behind the above tree line diorama. The mountain goat is three feet tall with a long white coat, a straight white beard under its chin, a short tail, and black horns a foot long. Facing the diorama, a slanted panel across its eight-foot front edge, its top 18 inches above the floor, provides additional text and line drawings of a white-tailed ptarmigan, ptarmigan chicks, a rosy finch, a springtail, and a mountain goat. To hear this text, press 118. If you would like to go to the next exhibit, Nature's Compost, move to the left and press 119. If you would prefer to go ahead to the next major exhibit, turn to the left and move 18 feet to the 3 foot wide by 6 foot tall freestanding display panel titled Living Near the Mountain, where the description will begin to play automatically. That's 118 for the diorama text or 119 for Nature's Compost. If you go directly to the next major exhibit, Living Near the Mountain, the description will play automatically. 118, naturally high, one and three quarters minutes. Some birds and animals live above tree line year round. Ptarmigans turn white in winter. They stay on snow as much as possible, camouflaged from predators. When their summer plumage grows in, their brown protective coloration helps them hide among rocks and low-growing plants. Summer winds continually carry insects up the mountain slopes, where they soon freeze and die. They are a staple food for rosy finches and other high-flying birds. Alpine plants grow in low clustered mats. This formation helps them conserve heat and water, adds stability in their windy environment, and shades individual plants from too intense solar rays. Not many insects can stay alive in winter, but springtails can supercool their bodies. 
They manufacture chemicals that act like antifreeze in a car, replacing water with fluid that won't congeal. Mountain goats often push and poke one another. Females with kids fearlessly defend their turf against both males and females. The mountain goat's main defense against predators is its ability to climb the steepest cliffs. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, move to the left in front of the Nature's Compost exhibit and press 119. If you would prefer to go ahead to the next major exhibit, turn to the left and move 18 feet to the three foot wide by six foot tall freestanding display panel titled Living Near the Mountain, where the description will begin to play automatically. That's 119 for Nature's Compost, or if you go directly to the next major exhibit, Living Near the Mountain, the description will play automatically. 119 Nature's Compost, two and one quarter minutes. This exhibit is four feet wide, three feet deep, and four feet tall. Two and one half feet above the floor, the exhibit's slope tanned front has a rotating turntable that shows four specimens under plexiglass. On the wall, there's an enlarged photo of a mosquito like fungus gnat. Nutrient recyclers at work. Nothing goes to waste in the cycles that sustain a wilderness. Excrement, dead plant and animal matter, or leftovers from a meal all become food for other organisms. Tiny organisms continually break down this debris. Recycling it into nutrients for use by living animals and plants. Even the smallest decomposers make a big contribution to ecosystem health. Fungi and bacteria are the leading nutrient recyclers on the mountain. Fungivores, fungus gnats shown above, feed on soil fungus, which in turn helps release nutrients into the soil. Turn the wheel to see examples of animal waste, scat, and other recyclable debris. Each labeled specimen is presented in a plexiglass covered dish, eight inches in diameter, recessed below the surface of the turntable. Pica scat shows small gray brown pellets of waste, each about one half inch long on a flat gray rock. Marmot scat displays one half to one and one half inch long round pellets of waste, much like that of a cat on a bed of soil and small rocks. Detritus shows dried evergreen needles, grass, and twigs. On a bed of sandy gray brown soil. Bones present several leg bones, a tooth, and a section of a jawbone with teeth on a bed of gray brown soil. When you are ready to continue with the next exhibit, move to the left in front of the old growth heather exhibit and press 120. If you would prefer to go ahead to the next major exhibit, turn to the left and move 15 feet to the three foot wide by six foot tall. Freestanding display panel titled Living Near the Mountain, where the description will begin to play automatically. That's 120 for old growth heather, or if you go directly to the next major exhibit, Living Near the Mountain, the description will play automatically. 120 Old Growth Heather, three and one half minutes. This exhibit is two feet wide, four feet deep, and five and one half feet tall. How long has heather existed on Mount Rainier? If you guessed even 2,000 years, you're off by several thousand years. Scientists studied the remains of long dead heather plants. To estimate their age, they measured decay of carbon isotopes in the roots. This hardy species has persisted here for as long as 7,000 years in the face of climate changes and volcanic eruptions. 
Below the text, there's a sloping panel divided by a silver-colored horizontal rod on which a magnifying glass can slide side to side and pivot upwards to examine the plant specimens above and below the bar. At the top of the sloping panel, a photo of white heather against a dark background. Needle-like evergreen leaves cover the shrub's stems, and small white, bell-shaped flowers hang downwards. Heather plays an important role in restoration of damaged meadows. The shrubby ground cover plant stabilizes soils and provides shelter for smaller flowering plants. Unfortunately, heather is difficult to propagate. It takes four to five years in a greenhouse to produce a four-inch pot of heather. Below this, plexiglass covers a nine-inch wide by 13-inch tall opening, which displays a cluster about six inches in diameter of a group of alpine plants with green fuzzy leaves. Below the bar with the magnifying glass, a two-foot square case displays a well-established dark green mat of heather, which spreads in irregularly shaped connected clumps. The spiky stems are about four inches long, covered with fine needle-like leaves. The blossoms are ivory-colored bells with red streaks where they attach to the leaves. How do fuzzy or waxy leaf surfaces help plants survive? What are the advantages of hollow stems and growth in low-lying mats? Look to your left to check your guess. At the left, on a sloping tan panel, two photos, one above the other. Alpine plants take root and grow in unforgiving, rocky terrain by finding crevices and shelters where soil has accumulated. They are specially adapted to withstand low temperatures, harsh winds, intense sunlight, and year-round snow and ice. The top photo shows two feathery, cream-colored blooms on thin stalks in a field of scrubby green vegetation. Fuzzy leaves help keep this flower warm. The western pasque flower is a perennial, ready to reproduce as soon as the snow melts. Because of harsh growing conditions, there are no annuals among alpine plants at paradise. The bottom picture shows two round white clusters of blooms with reddish stems. The reddish shoots of the Sitka valerian contain high levels of a pigment that protects the plant against ultraviolet rays and converts light to heat. To the left of the sloping panel, this text. Hollow stems retain heat generated during growth spurts. Waxy leaves help plants retain water. Alpine plants put most of their limited resources for growth into producing flowers that may be twice the size of the leaves. Strong root systems enable the plant to hold fast in high winds and tap deep to find water. Some alpine plants grow in low matted clusters. This adaptive strategy protects them from wind and shades them from intense sunlight while conserving moisture. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, move six feet to the left in front of the mountain air exhibit and press one two one. One two one mountain air two and three quarters minutes. This diagonally mounted clear plexiglass wall panel is five feet wide and five and one half feet tall. At the left edge, four photographs stacked one above the other. The top photo shows nearby mountains on a clear day. The second photo is the same view on a hazy, smoggy day. The third photo shows a close-up of a green plant with eight rounded, petal-shaped leaves arranged like the spokes of an umbrella, dotted with brownish-orange spots. Ozone is toxic to plants, reducing growth and at higher concentrations, visibly damaging leaves. In people, ozone irritates and damages the lungs and can irritate conditions like asthma. The bottom photo shows shallow water filled with greenish-brown plants, black tadpole-like squiggles, 
and small pearlized bluish gray and white bubble-like eggs. Some chemicals that contribute to smog also cause acid rain, harming aquatic organisms. Air quality is a vital sign of the health of our mountains' ecosystems. On a good day, the air at Paradise is clear, fragrant, and refreshing. On a bad day, smog obscures the view from Paradise, as emissions from cars, factories, wood stoves, and other human activities affect the air quality at Mount Rainier. One component of smog is ozone. Ozone in the upper atmosphere protects people, animals, and plants from the sun's ultraviolet rays. But ground-level ozone found in smog is harmful. Mounted on the plexiglass, a digital display four inches tall and two feet wide shows the current ozone levels at Paradise in red figures. Ozone is measured in parts per billion. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Ozone Air Quality Index identifies air quality based on ozone exposures averaged over an eight-hour period. Zero to 75 parts per billion, good to moderate air quality, green text. 76 to 95 parts per billion, children, elderly, and people with respiratory problems should reduce outdoor activities, orange text. 96 or higher parts per billion, everyone should reduce outdoor activities, red text. In low levels at prolonged concentrations, ozone is known to be toxic to plants, reducing growth and producing leaf damage. At higher levels, it can cause illness and even death in people. Some chemicals that contribute to smog also cause acid rain, harming aquatic organisms. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, turn so your back is to the mountain air exhibit and go across the six-foot aisle to face the three-foot-wide by six-foot-tall panel titled Living Near the Mountain. Its description will begin to play automatically. 122. Since time immemorial, three and one-half minutes. The background of this three-foot-wide, six-foot-tall panel is a pale regional map showing the locations of American Indian reservations in the vicinity of Mount Rainier. In this area, an overhead speaker plays recorded thoughts about the mountain. A number of American Indian tribes have special ties to the mountain. For countless generations, people have come here to obtain food, basketry materials, and other necessities. On top of the background map, a smaller map of Mount Rainier showing the areas typically used by each tribe, and four black-and-white photographs and two drawings. The titles, since time immemorial and text describing the images, are printed on top of the background map. The images are in two horizontal rows of three images each. In the first row, the photo at the left shows three men wearing soft felt hats with brims, shirts and jackets, long pants, and they have baskets on straps strung over their shoulders. This is our life. This is a part of our history. These are stories for all animals around here. Coyote, rabbit, fox, raven. How these animals gave their lives to the living. Sonny Miller, Muckleshoot. In the center, a formal photo portrait of an older American Indian wearing a light-colored, high-necked, long-sleeved tunic with an open, richly patterned, sleeveless, long coat over it. The Puyallup loved their grandmother, Tacobit, the mountain that is now called Rainier. Tacobit fed them and her other grandchildren through the river, which she always kept supplied with life-giving fish and clear cold water. She wished to be a mountain, and she said because in this way she might always feed her grandchildren, sending everlasting life to her own people, the Puyallups. John Hote, early 1900s. 
At the right, a photo of an older woman, her leathery face lined with many deep wrinkles, her long gray hair parted in the middle and braided in pigtails. Traces of the Cowlitz Indians are in the names of features around the mountain. Cowlitz River, Cowlitz Rocks, Kiona Creek, Kiona Peak, Skanewa Lake, and Mowich River. We Cowlitz have always been here. In the second row, at the left, a person drying berries. Below this, the story of Tacobut from the nearby Living Near the Mountain panel is reprinted. In the center and at the right, there are drawings of two middle-aged American Indian men. Now move to the right again, to the fourth panel, whose background is a pale sepia-toned photo of a contemporary middle-aged Nisqually woman and a child seated on the ground gathering grass. Basket makers in this region use a decorative technique called imbrication. They weave fibers of different colors into a basket surface, creating distinctive patterns. Women journey to mountain slopes in search of bear grass. Bear grass fibers add white to a basket maker's color palette. At the lower left, a small black-and-white photo of an older American Indian woman weaving a basket. Anna Squally, grandmother of Leonard and Caroline Squally, was a highly skilled basket weaver. She wove some of her baskets tight enough to hold water. It took Mrs. Squally about three months to complete a watertight basket. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, go back to the previous panel and move to the left to the window alcove at the corner. The description will begin to play automatically. One, two, three. Quotations from wall panels. Two and one half minutes. These are some of the quotations on the wall panels in this area. What other peak can offer to scientific examination or to the admiration of tourists 14 living glaciers of such magnitude issuing from every side or such grandeur, beauty, and variety of scenery? General Hazard Stevens, Early Climber, 1876. This mountain's power lies in the open secret of its remote apparition, silvery low relief, coming and going moonlike at the horizon, always loftier, lonelier than I remember. Denise Levertoff, Open Secret, 1992. Mount Rainier has all the features of Mount Everest, except the lack of oxygen that goes with higher elevations. As far as glaciers, icefalls, rock ridges, and a true summit are concerned, Mount Rainier has them all. The weather on Rainier can reach a severity equal to that of the highest mountain in the world. Jim Whitaker, first U.S. climber to summit at Everest. February 1969. When you stand on Mount Rainier, you look in a circle and valleys and glaciers and rivers and ridges radiate like the spokes of a wheel. You're standing on the point of union, the place where everything comes together. Father Timothy Sauer, 1997. Anyone can benefit from the influence of the mountain. After a few days high on the rock and snow, all of one's faculties are sharpened. George Center, Climber, 1971. A sense of geography and belonging to it is on people's minds today. Where we went for berries, our favorite hunting area, what medicine plants we used. For our family tree, we have relatives in the Nisqually, the Puyallup, and the Cowlitz. Also, the Yakima and the Klickitat. They're all tied to the drainages and so to the mountain. The mountain is where the drainages converge. Bill Isle, Upper Cowlitz, 1999. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, with the windows of the middle alcove, the one without a table, behind you, go 16 feet to the mini-theater 
with a five-minute video about what brings people to Mount Rainier. As you approach the theater's doorway, you will hear an automatic greeting to confirm your location. As you enter the theater, stay to the left and then move to the seating area on your right. If the video and its audio description is not playing when you enter, it will start soon. 124, Fearsome Forces of Change, 1 and 1 quarter minutes. This wall panel introduces a series of exhibits about the mountain's volcanic and glacial geologic history. Mount Rainier is an active volcano composed of overlapping lava layers and pierced by steam vents on its summit. Huge amounts of ice and snow encase the cone-shaped mountain, making debris flows and lahars potential threats to park visitors and valley residents. Immediately to the right, a two and one half foot wide plexiglass window offers a photo of Mount Rainier. At the left of the window, four and one half feet above the floor, a lever with a round knob allows visitors to change the view to see a simple drawing of Mount Rainier's interior. Above ground, the peaked gray-brown mountainside is half covered with snow. Inside the mountain, a vein-like red-orange line labeled conduit extends from the bottom of the drawing to the peak. At the bottom, the line joins a rough dome shape. Its outer part, the same red-orange as the line, is labeled magma reservoir, and its lighter red-orange inner portion is labeled magma. The next exhibit, titled Fire and Ice, is to the right, around the corner. When you are ready, press 125 to hear its description. 125, Fire and Ice, 3 Minutes. The background of this five-foot-wide display wall is filled with a photograph of Mount Rainier above the Tacoma skyline. At the top of the wall behind this, a black LED display shows moving red and yellow-orange letters, which spell out 13 historical milestones of volcanic activity at Mount Rainier. These start with the growth of the ancestral Mount Rainier volcano one to two million years ago, and end with minor pumice eruptions, which produced the most recent known volcanic deposit from Mount Rainier between 1820 and 1854. Mount Rainier is an active volcano overlaid by snowfields and glaciers. Eruptions of hot lava molded by glacial ice formed the mountain. Today, the process of erosion continues to shape the mountain. Future events caused by volcanic activity pose dangers to downstream communities. On the wall, on top of the background photo, there are six additional photos. The two at the left, one above the other, show geologists at work on Mount Rainier with maps and surveying equipment. Nearly all of Mount Rainier is protected as wilderness. Geologists must be skilled hikers and climbers to reach important but remote rock exposures. The four photos at the right, one above the other, show the signs of a volcanic landscape. At the top, a close-up of Mount Rainier's highest point, covered with layers of snow. Mount Rainier's summit cone grew between 5,600 and 1,100 years ago. A series of eruptions filled a vast crater that had been formed when the volcano's summit and northeast slope collapsed. Next, a close-up of a lumpy rock surface modeled in colors of gray, tan, and rust. Inside the volcano, groundwater is heated by hot rock and acidified by sulfurous gases. This rock was changed to soft clay by sulfurous hot water. Third, from inside a summit steam vent, a hole in layers of ice reveals blue sky. Eyewitness accounts borne out by geological evidence tell us that Mount Rainier erupted many times in the 1800s. 
Steam vents on the summit, earthquakes, and geologically active terrain are indicators that the mountain can and will erupt again. At the bottom, a snowy gray mountain peak with a huge chunk broken away, leaving an exposed crater of tan rock. Glaciers, rockfalls, and landslides continually erode Mount Rainier's surface, making the volcano look old. But at less than 500,000 years of age, Mount Rainier is geologically young. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, move several feet to the right and to the front of the left end of the nine foot long curved table and press 126. If you would like to go directly to the next major exhibit, look and listen, continue to the right end of the nine foot long curved table and move three feet to the right. Then press 129. That's 126 for the first exhibit on the curved table, or if you go directly to the look and listen exhibit, Press 129. 126 Detective Story, 3 and 1 quarter minutes. This exhibit area has a 9 foot long curved table, a 28 inch wide by 16 inch tall video monitor on the dark gray wall behind the table, and photos and text on the wall at the right end of the table. There are usually several stools in front of the table. At the left end of the table, there are four connected photos, each nine inches wide by 12 inches tall, standing upright, arranged in a zigzag pattern like the pleated folds of an accordion. At the left end, a field of large rounded rocks with subalpine firs in the background. These lava rocks are similar in origin, but are very different in appearance. Lava rocks of the same composition appear red, black, or gray. What causes the variations in color? Next, a section of mountain, shiny black and charcoal gray, appears sliced away in hundreds of jagged vertical layers. This black rock is part of a lava flow that cooled high on the slopes of Mount Rainier. Why is this lava rock black, glassy, and reflective? Third, snow partly covers a peak of rough, dark, reddish pink rock. These lava rocks appear partially or entirely red in hue. What processes cause the red coloration in these lava rocks? Fourth, a jumble of smooth, rounded rocks in shades of gray fills a close up photo. Most of the lava rocks at Mount Rainier are gray in color. What caused this gray coloration? On the tabletop in front of the photos, there are three touchable rocks. At the left, a four inch high black rock, six inches front to back and five inches from side to side. In the center, a two inch high dark red rock with tan specks about three inches around. At the right, there's a two inch high dark gray rock with light gray specks. It's a rounded triangle shape, four inches wide at the back and three and one half inches from the back to the point at the front. Open the drawer in the front of the table to learn why rocks of similar origin appear different. The black rock is lava that cooled so quickly that few crystals had time to grow. The lava might have flowed against a glacier, speeding the cooling process. The red rock formed from lava that cooled more slowly. Air and moisture passed through cracks and pores in the cooling lava. The rock turned red, like rust. Most of the rock at Paradise is this gray color. The lava took longer to cool, allowing time for tiny crystals to grow. Rock like this forms in the center of a lava flow, where cooling is slow and air can't easily reach. At the right end of the table, a trackball and button control the operation. Of the Cascade Volcano's interactive video display on the wall behind the table. For a description of this exhibit, move to the right and press 127. If you would prefer to go to the next exhibit, titled Look and Listen, 
move to the right to a two-foot-deep semicircular tabletop. When you are in front of the table, press 129. That's 127 for the Cascade Volcanoes interactive video display, or if you go directly to the Look and Listen exhibit, press 129. 127 Cascade Volcanoes Interactive Video, 4 minutes. On the right end of the tabletop, a trackball at the right and a button just to its left operate like a computer mouse to control the interactive video display on the wall behind the table. The screen provides information about the origin, history, description, and hazards of 13 different volcanoes, including Mount Rainier, which we'll use as our example. The main menu, which is dominated by a photo of Mount Rainier in shades of blue, provides three choices. What is the origin of the Cascade Volcanoes? When did this volcano last erupt? And what hazards does this volcano pose? If you choose the first option, what is the origin of the Cascade Volcanoes, you go to a screen where you may select Formation of the Cascade Volcanoes or the Ring of Fire. If you choose the Ring of Fire, you go to a screen with a map of the continents surrounding the Pacific Ocean. A pale red, wide, irregular, upside-down U-shape highlights red triangles representing volcanoes that encircle the Pacific, passing the coastal countries. At the lower left, it passes Antarctica, moves up or north past New Zealand and Asia, moves to the right or east, just below Canada, and then moves down or south past the United States and Central and South America. Volcanoes are not randomly distributed over the Earth's surface. Most are concentrated on the edges of continents, along island chains beneath the sea forming long mountain ranges. More than half of the world's active volcanoes above sea level encircle the Pacific Ocean to form the Circumpacific Ring of Fire. During the 1960s, scientists developed a theory called plate tectonics, that explains the locations of volcanoes and their relationship to other large-scale geologic features. In the Pacific Northwest, an oceanic plate is sliding under the North American plate in a process called subduction. Earthquakes and volcanoes are the result of these slow-motion collisions. If you go back to the main menu and select when did this volcano last erupt and choose Mount Rainier from the 13 volcanoes listed at the right side of the screen, the next screen has text, which profiles its location as Washington, a height of 14,410 feet, and its type as stratovolcano. Its latest magma eruption was approximately 1,000 years ago, and its most recent steam reports were steam eruptions in the 19th century. Its present thermal activity is many steam vents and hot rocks in the summit area. If you return to the main menu and choose what hazards does this volcano pose, and then select Mount Rainier from the 13 volcanoes at the right side of the screen, you arrive at a screen with a regional map of the areas surrounding Mount Rainier National Park. The map is marked with various colors to show the near-volcano hazard zone, the downstream lahar hazard zone, and the regional lava flow hazard zone. An inset map indicates post-lahar flooding in purple, beginning just south of Auburn and spreading north and west to the Puget Sound. This exhibit continues on the three and one-half foot wide wall at the right end of the table. For a description of this exhibit, move to the right and press 128. If you would prefer to go to the next exhibit, titled Look and Listen, 
move five feet to the right to a two-foot-deep semicircular tabletop in front of an irregularly shaped display wall. When you're in front of the table, the description will begin to play automatically. That's 128 for the continuation of this exhibit about the Cascade Volcanoes, or if you go directly to the Look and Listen exhibit, the description will play automatically. 128. Cascade Volcanoes Continued. Two minutes. On this three and one half foot wide wall at the right end of the table, two large square photos at the left, one above the other, and to the right, an 11 inch wide by 21 inch tall panel hinged at the top. The upper photo shows gray and black upright columns of tight coils of steam clouds rising from a gray brown mountain that's lightly streaked with snow. Hot molten rock called magma is held under pressure 60 miles below Earth's surface. Because it's lighter than solid rock, magma works its way toward the surface, accumulating several miles below the volcano. When it reaches critical mass, magma forces its way to the surface, creating an eruption. If the magma moves fast and is very pasty, it becomes a gaseous froth that hardens into ash as it jets high into the air. Winds then carry ash over a wide area. What hazards does volcanic ash pose? In the lower photo, Three streams of fiery red-orange lava streak down a dark mountainside. If magma rises slowly and is more fluid, gas bubbles can escape and the magma erupts as a flow of molten rock called lava. Most of Mount Rainier consists of numerous layers of lava, evidence of successive eruptions that have built the mountain. It's likely that future eruptions will produce still more lava flows. Is lava the most dangerous volcanic product of Mount Rainier? Lift the panel to find answers to the questions. Answer. Volcanic ash makes breathing difficult and causes eye problems. Motorists can't see to drive, and ash piles up on the roadways. Ash damages machinery, shorts out electrical equipment, and ruins crops. A layer of wet ash only four inches thick is heavy enough to bring down a roof. The next exhibit, to the right, titled Look and Listen, has a two-foot-deep semicircular tabletop in front of an irregularly shaped display wall. When you're in front of the table, press 129. 129. Look and Listen. Three and three-quarters minutes. On this irregularly shaped display wall, there are seven photos. At the upper left, a turbulent, muddy waterfall, which is a fast-moving flow of mud, sand, and meltwater known as a debris flow. In the center, there are three photos, one above the other. At the top, a glacial river. Below this, a broad, muddy, rock-strewn riverbed. And at the bottom, wide, splashing, surging, muddy, debris-laden water. At the right edge, a vertical row of three photos. First, a glacier surrounded by a lava ridge. Then water runoff from the top of a debris-covered glacier. And last, a smashed, splintered tree trunk. It's possible to outwit a debris flow. If you're hiking in a valley whose stream or river is fed by a glacier, watch for sudden changes in water levels. If you hear a roar, go uphill quickly, even if this means leaving the trail. About 200 feet above the stream bed is adequate to escape most debris flows. Do not run downstream. Run uphill fast. Debris flows threaten park visitors because they may occur without warning. A debris flow may begin as an outburst flood. Meltwater bursts suddenly from a glacier. 
Picking up speed, the water fills with mud, sand, and rock. It roars down a stream bed or river valley, destroying everything in its way. In front of the wall, a two-foot-deep semicircular table, its top printed with a green and blue map of Mount Rainier to the Puget Sound. At the left side of the table, two magnifying glasses, seven inches in diameter with handles four inches long, are mounted six inches above labeled samples. A soil sample from Tacoma, which shows clay and woody material, and an old-growth tree sample from the Ording area, where large trees and boulders traceable to Mount Rainier's summit were found buried in the soil. At the right side, a similar magnifying glass is mounted above a soil sample from the Mount Rainier area, with clay similar to the sample from the Tacoma area. To the left of this magnifying glass, a panel shaped like a tabbed file folder is hinged to the tabletop. This text is on the table and the file folder. The Case of the Missing Summit In 1896, scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey discovered that the volcano had once been as much as 2,000 feet higher. Its top had been destroyed, and a new lava cone had taken its place. A geological detective story. Can you figure out what happened to the missing summit? Open the file to learn the outcome. More than 60 lahars, very large debris flows, have dramatically altered various portions of Mount Rainier during the past 10,000 years. In the 1950s, geologists determined that the soil samples from Tacoma and Steamboat Prow came from Mount Rainier slopes. They established that the mountain's summit and northeast slope collapsed during a volcanic eruption. Radiocarbon ages of wood from this huge lahar, the Osceola mudflow, show it occurred 5,600 years ago. The jumble of old trees and volcanic rock formed when a lahar roared through a forest near present-day Ording about 600 years ago. The electron mudflow emerged on Rainier's west side, beginning with a collapse of clay-rich altered rocks, and continued to Puget Sound. The next portion of this exhibit is a colorful vinyl map on the floor to the right. The map is five and one-half feet wide by seven feet tall. Once you have moved to the foot of the map, the edge toward the Tatouche Range, you will be facing Mount Rainier. Press 130 to hear the map's description. 130 Geohazard Map, 3 and 1 quarter minutes. This colorful map on the floor is 5 and 1 half feet wide by 7 feet tall. The foot of the map is the edge toward the Tatouche Range on the south side of the Visitor Center. This text appears on the map. Are you at risk? What risks does Mount Rainier pose to people who live within its reach? What can you do to protect yourself? Learn about volcanic processes that affect your community. Develop an emergency plan to help you during any natural disaster. Ask local officials in advance how they advise you to respond during any emergency. Each inch on the map equals one mile. Seattle and Bellevue are at the top center or northern edge of the map. Morton and Randall are at the bottom center, the southern edge. Paradise at Mount Rainier is 27 miles north of the bottom edge and 15 miles west of the eastern or right edge. A key at its lower left explains the significance of four different color markings. Red lines streaming away from Mount Rainier's summit show debris flow hazard zones. Yellow shapes extend outward from Mount Rainier National Park, indicating lahar hazard zones. A purple band east of Seattle and south to Auburn marks flooding and post-Lahar sedimentation zones. Dark gray, which centers on Mount Rainier National Park, 
indicates lava flow hazard zones. Six feet to the right of the foot of the map, the balcony railing encloses a nine-foot-wide by five-foot-deep alcove. Carved into the three sides of the alcove's railing are American Indian names for Mount Rainier. For example, on the longest side, toward the far right corner, is Tacobit, the Puyallup name. This exhibit continues on a display wall five feet to the left of the top left edge of this seven-foot-tall map. This wall shows a photo of a debris flow, a rocky mudslide roaring down the mountainside, with these words printed on top of the photo. Know the warning signs. Know what to do. To the right, three photos, one above the other, showing lahars, mud flows, and a tree trunk marked with mud at the height of a mud flow. Standing on the floor close to the wall, a muddy sign on a three and a half foot wide by two and one half foot tall sawhorse. Trail closed due to mud flow. To the right of this wall, a 20 foot tall, touchable, smooth coated fiberglass replica of a small portion of a glacier. This is the other edge of the same replica we encountered as part of the Top of the World exhibit. Its color is many variations of white, with a few light streaks of blue and gray, and it's shiny like ice. Near the top, out of reach, jagged icicles hang over the irregularly shaped display wall. Words appear on the wall and extend onto the glacier. Geohazards, watch out below. This concludes the audio description tour of the Henry M. Jackson Memorial Visitor Center at Paradise at Mount Rainier National Park. We thank you for joining us. At the far end of this floor, you may take the elevator or the steps to the first floor. There, please return your receiver to the information desk, which is across the Great Hall, opposite the wall with the elevator and stairs. Second Floor Orientation, 3 and 1 quarter minutes. You are now at the corner of the second floor, which is straight ahead if you've taken the steps, or to your right if you've taken the elevator. At this end of the building are the elevator, the gift shop and bookstore, and the top of the stairs, which go down to the first floor. Along the north side, a seven-foot-wide walkway extends 94 feet toward the far end of the building. When you later move along the walkway, a balcony railing at the left edge protects the open overlook to the first floor below, and to the right, alcoves of almost floor-to-ceiling multi-paned windows showcase views of Mount Rainier. Some of the alcoves have benches or chair-height stools, and others have open space. Counting from this corner, the second and third window alcoves have binocular spotting scopes focused on Mount Rainier. The scopes are 18 inches from front to back and 9 inches across. The scope in the second alcove is on a stand 5 feet high, and the one in the third alcove is 3 and 3 quarters feet high. The west end of the second floor features the 60-foot by 40-foot major exhibit space from a text panel at the entrance to the visitor center. The Power and Presence of Mount Rainier The mountain's snowy grandeur inspires awe and wonder. Here at Paradise, discover the secrets of Mount Rainier's flourishing yet fragile ecosystems. Explore a landscape shaped by immense geologic forces. In the main exhibit area on the second floor, the center irregularly shaped display walls range from 7 to 13 feet tall and from 2 to 8 feet wide and are painted white or light blue. Portions of some exhibits have mottled charcoal gray or rust orange backgrounds. Some exhibit panels are made of clear plexiglass with text and images printed on them. The predominant colors of the exhibit titles 
are ivory, gray, blue, tan, gold, rust, and black. Most photographs are color, with only a few older photographs in black and white. Unless used as an exhibit's entire background, the photographs range in size from 6 inches square to 21 inches square. Rough, thin, stylized steel cutouts of snowflakes, mountains, insects, wildflowers, animals, and such decorate a number of the exhibit panels. About 1 8 inch thick and 18 to 24 inches in diameter, the cutouts are modeled in colors of dark brown, reddish brown, burnt orange, and light gray. To hear the description of the view of Mount Rainier, begin moving down the walkway and then press 104. If you would like to go directly to the exhibits, continue 75 feet along the walkway, about three quarters of the way toward the next corner. Before the corner, you will reach the Glacier's Come and Go exhibit on the right, and the automatic audio description will begin. That's 104 for the description of Mount Rainier, or go toward the next corner for the automatic description of the Glacier's Come and Go exhibit. Glaciers come and go, three and one-half minutes. On the left wall of this window alcove, a text panel with three photographs of Nisqually Glacier introduces this exhibit. Climate regulates the size of a glacier because it controls the amount of snowfall and melt. If summer melt exceeds winter snowfall, the terminus melts quickly and retreats up valley. The advance and retreat of Nisqually Glacier's terminus, or snout, is a result of climate changes on Mount Rainier. Nisqually Glacier has been studied since 1931. The alcove houses an 8-foot-long table with a 2 and 3 quarters foot deep slanted top, its front edge 2 and 1 half feet above the floor. The left half of the tabletop has a recessed 9-inch by 12-inch video monitor and at the back left corner a slightly larger monitor standing above the table which displays the same image. Press the button on the tabletop below and to the right of the recessed monitor to start the three-minute silent video, which has on-screen text. The video contains aerial views of Mount Rainier and its glaciers, hikers trekking across fields of snow, snow falling on subalpine firs, mountain valleys, rapidly flowing rivers, lava ridges covered with green vegetation, and male and female scientists taking measurements of glaciers. Some highlights of the on-screen text include... As they move, glaciers shape the mountain in many ways. Rocks and other debris carried by the glaciers carve out valleys. During the last ice age, glaciers covered most of the region. In 1931, the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Park Service began recording glacial change. The terminus of the Nisqually Glacier has retreated more than one mile since 1884. The lower section of the Nisqually Glacier thinned by 65 feet between 1980 and 1991. Today in the Pacific Northwest, glaciers have retreated to the mountain peaks, a trend occurring worldwide. Still, glaciers are the greatest reservoir of fresh water in the world. The glaciers of Mount Rainier are a primary source of water for much of the region and are essential for supporting a rich diversity of life. The right half of the tabletop displays a simple brown and white graphic titled Glaciers Up Close that shows the location of the glaciers in this view of Mount Rainier. There are 25 glaciers on Mount Rainier. Several are visible from Paradise. You can see the upper part of Nisqually Glacier in this view. Glaciers are constantly moving. 
Ice that forms from snow dropped at higher elevations flows miles down to the glacier's terminus. A snowfield is a permanent field of snow. The Muir snowfield is visible from here. At the center of the right side of the table, a movable monocular spotting scope stands a foot above the tabletop. A glacier's features are signs of ceaseless motion. Look for cracks in the ice known as crevasses, columns or blocks of ice called seracs, and other distinctive features. The ice fall on the Nisqually Glacier is visible from here. The next exhibit is in the window alcove to the left, the last alcove on this wall. You may hear the description of its exhibit, Building Blocks of Glaciers, by pressing 105. If you would prefer instead to go directly to the exhibit after that, move past the next alcove to the corner, turn left, and go six feet to hear about the Race Against Time game by pressing 106. That's 105 for Building Blocks of Glaciers, or 106 for the Race Against Time game. Meadowlands Diorama, 5 Minutes This exhibit is an 8-foot wide, 7-foot deep, 8-foot tall, glass-enclosed diorama that shows a winter scene on the left and a summer scene on the right. Above and to the right, an overhead speaker plays sounds of birds and other animals. Meadowlands, life in a subalpine meadow. Plants and animals at Paradise cope with heavy snowfalls and chilling winds during most of the year. While seeds and bulbs lie dormant, animals hibernate or forage beneath the snowpack. During the four to six weeks of summer, flowering plants compete for pollinators' attentions. Resident wildlife raise the next generation and prepare for winter. Beautiful, complex, and fragile, the Paradise Meadows offer a close-up look at a dynamic ecological community. The left half of the case, four feet wide, displays a painted background of Mount Rainier covered in snow. Near the background at the right, the bristly branches of a subalpine fir sag under a heavy buildup of snow. The ground, which slopes from high in back to low in front, is covered with thick white snow. Nestled in the snow under the tree, a bushy-tailed red fox watches a white snowshoe hare in the snow to the left. Behind the hare are its large tracks in the snow. Seen from the side of the case at the left, a mole rests in its burrow in the soil beneath the snow. With a cylindrical body, pointed snout, beady eyes, thick dark brown fur, short legs, broad feet, and long claws on its front feet, the mole is eight inches long. The four-foot-wide right half of the case displays a painted background of Mount Rainier's subalpine meadow. Two birds are painted on the background mural. Near the center, a medium-sized gray bird with black wings and tail, white patches, and a long, sturdy, pointed black bill perches on a branch of a dead tree. To the right, a large, stocky bird with dark gray-brown plumage and a long, squarish tail stands on a flat rock in the meadow. Near the background at the left, the thickly-needled branches of a subalpine fir hang low over the flat ground, which is covered by an irregular jumble of various-sized gray and brown rocks resting on brown soil. Grasses and wildflowers, some close to the ground and some a foot or more tall, in white, pink, red, and blue, grow in the soil and between the rocks. In the center, a mottled brown and tan marmot rests on a rock. The marmot is 24 inches long, with a short, broad head, small ears, short legs with claws on its black front paws, and a 10-inch-long, thick, furry tail. 
At the front, toward the left, a small brown squirrel stands on a rock facing forward. At the right, near the back, a mouse, its body three and one-half inches long, a light brownish-gray upper body and white underside, large eyes, big ears, and a long tail, sits on a rock. Far to the right, close to the background, a reddish-brown chipmunk with five black-and-white stripes along its back, from its nose to its rump, sits upright, five inches tall with a four-inch-long tail. Seen from the side of the case at the right, a pika rests on a bed of dried grass in its den in a hollow between jumbled rocks. With a small head, large ears, and puffy cheeks, this sandy brown rodent looks similar to a guinea pig. Across the eight-foot front edge of the diorama, its top 18 inches above the floor, a slanted panel provides additional text and line drawings of a hummingbird, a hawk, a snowshoe hare, a tree, and a pika. To hear this text, press 107. To visit the next exhibit about the meadows and tree islands at Paradise, go to the right and behind the Meadowlands diorama until you reach the left end of a curved table. There, press 108 to begin the description of subalpine meadow flowers, the first of a series of four related exhibits which extend along the 18-foot length of the curved table. If you would prefer to go directly to the next major exhibit after this series of four exhibits, go to the right edge of the Meadowlands diorama and then move two more feet to the right, just past the freestanding wooden column. Go forward across the 12-foot aisle to the On Top of the World exhibit and press 112 to hear its description. That's 107 to hear the text below the diorama, or 108 to hear about the exhibit behind this one. If you go directly to the next major exhibit, On Top of the World, press 112 to hear its description. Mountain Dwellers, 1 and 1 quarter minutes. In the 9 inch space that this display wall is set back from the previous display wall at the left, a shiny bright blue background shows two small photos of modern climbers. On the wall below the title, Mountain Dwellers, a video monitor, 28 inches wide by 16 inches high, features a short continuous video to introduce the next three panels about animal adaptations to the harsh conditions of the high alpine zone. In addition to the images mentioned by the narrator, the video also shows Mount Rainier covered in snow, subalpine firs laden with snow, wind blowing climbers gear and tents, a backpacker hiking on a snowy trail, a bird foraging in the snow, a stalking mountain lion, a spotted brown and white bird, small tunnel entrances in thick snow, a red fox diving headfirst into snow, and a vole, a fuzzy brown rodent in a nest of grass. If you missed the previous exhibit, On Top of the World, you may move back a few feet to the left and press 112. If you are ready to move to the next exhibit about lichen, move a few feet to the right and press 113. That's 112 for on top of the world at the left or 113 for lichen at the right. Shelter from the Storm, one minute. This exhibit is two feet wide, three feet deep, and four and one half feet tall. Above tree line, plants can't survive in the path of prevailing winds. In the shelter of a rock, they have a chance. Three feet above the floor, a plexiglass case houses a collection of rocks, plants, and insects. 
dwarf willow, lupin, spreading phlox, dwarf lupin, and a bumblebee. A portion of the text on the wall to the right of this case. Like you, alpine plant and animal species require energy for survival. Plants convert sunlight energy to grow. As animals eat plants and then are eaten by other animals, energy flows through the ecosystem in food chains. Below the plexiglass case, the sloped tan front of the exhibit has a raised knob that opens a drawer. Inside, there are detailed explanations of the sun, willow, ptarmigan food chain and the sun, lupin, bee food chain. When you're ready to continue with the next exhibit, move to the left in front of the glass-enclosed above tree-line diorama and press 117. Living near the mountain, four minutes, from a nearby wall panel. Since time immemorial, people have come to the mountain to feed their bodies and their souls. Mount Rainier offers boundless opportunities for contemplation, inspiration, and adventure. This pristine wilderness, preserved from exploitation, belongs to all of us. How have many generations expressed their relationship to the mountain? What should that relationship be? You may go around the four sides of this freestanding exhibit. Each side is three feet wide and six feet tall. This audio description segment will cover the first two panels, and the next segment will cover the final two panels. This first panel has the title, Living Near the Mountain, on top of a muted sepia-toned photo of an American Indian woman. She wears a dark dress with ruffles down either side of its front and a light-colored collar. In her styled hair, a ribbon with a flat bow, thick hoop earrings, a brooch at her neck, and a long metal necklace of interlocking circles around her neck like a choker and hanging down the front of her dress. Quieton, a Nisqually woman, was called Elizabeth by non-Indians. This family photograph dates from the early 1900s. On the lower portion of the panel, Takobet, majestic mountain, silhouetted against our eastern sky, guardian over the land of the Nisqually people, who sends the rains to renew our spirits, who feeds the river, the home of our salmon, who protects our eagle in her flight, who reaches upward through the floating clouds to touch the hand of the great spirit. Tacobet, we honor you. Quoted by Cecilia Svinth Carpenter, Nisqually historian. Now move to the right, around the corner, to the second panel, whose background is a pale sepia tone illustration of Mount Rainier in the distance, and at the bottom, two wooden canoes at water's edge. The title, A Story About the Mountain, and this text are printed on top of the photo. A long time ago, two brothers lived near the mountain. The older brother was named Enumclaw, and the younger was Capunus. These brothers were great hunters and traveled far. They were traveling in search of a spirit that would make them great medicine men. In time, Enumclaw became possessed of great strength and could throw small stones from peak to peak in the mountains. As he grew older, Capunus took long trips alone. At the head of the Cowlitz River, he took baths every day at dawn and at dusk, and in this way he finally acquired a great fire spirit. In friendly rivalry, the brothers sat on the rocky ridge to the south of Tacoma, and they agreed to test their powers. The contest raged with such terrific force that in a short time, only a sharp rock stood high in the air where the ridge had been. This rock is known now as Sawtooth Rock and stands somewhere to the south or southeast of Longmire's Springs. When people came near their home, Enumclaw would throw stones at the different peaks as a signal of someone's approach. The noise was terrifying, and fiery flames could be seen. 
The people related that Enumclaw had caused great birds to fly at such speed that their wings made great rumbling sounds and that Capunus caused lightning. The great spirit saw that such dangerous playthings were not safe in the hands of human beings. So he caused Enumclaw to be the thunder and Capunus to be the lightning forever. Told by Henry Sicade, Nisqually, 1924. To continue with the next two panels, move around the corner to the right to the third panel and press 122. If you would prefer to go to the next major exhibit, move to the nearby window alcove at the corner where the description will begin to play automatically. That's 122 for the next panel around the corner, or if you go directly to the next major exhibit at the window alcove, the description will play automatically. Mountain Journal, 3 and 1 quarter minutes. Starting in the corner and moving to the left, this side of the visitor center has three window alcoves like those on the opposite side. Each alcove is 10 feet wide by 3 feet deep and has a pair of 7 and 1 half foot high by 4 foot wide windows, each divided into 16 panes. The view of the Tatouche range from each of these south-facing windows is similar. The first and third alcoves house eight-foot-long tables with two and three-quarters foot deep slanted tops, their front edges two and one-half feet above the floor. Usually, two chair-height stools are in each alcove. In the first alcove, the left half of the table displays an open book with tabbed, plasticized pages, 19 inches wide by 16 inches tall. The book has printed text with people's thoughts about the mountain and reproductions of pages from handwritten summit registers. The right side of the table provides an open space for writing, and a small recess bin near the back at the right side provides cards and a pen. Nearby, to the center, a slot is cut into this half of the tabletop. Take a moment to share your thoughts and feelings about Paradise and Mount Rainier. Drop your completed card in the slot. When you are ready, move 10 feet to the left, where the second alcove provides an unobstructed view of the Tatouche range. Then when you are ready to move past the second window alcove, go 10 feet farther to the left, where the third alcove provides an 8-foot wide table with a 2 and 3 quarters foot deep slanted top, its front edge 2 and 1 half feet above the floor. Mounted to stand a foot above either side of the tabletop are two movable monocular spotting scopes. The tabletop features a brown sketch which matches the view from the window, identifying the ten peaks of the mountain range. The highest peak, second from the left, is Unicorn Peak at 6,917 feet, and the lowest peak, second from the right, is Chutla Peak at 5,919 feet. Outside the window, across a valley, the long linear Tatouche Range is two and one half miles from the visitor center and in this view extends nine miles from east to west, left to right. In summer, the meadows appear as smooth green patches from this distance. In the fall, the craggy peaks of gray rock are broken by avalanche paths, which are filled with yellow and orange vegetation. During winter, the jagged snow-covered peaks are often obscured behind clouds, but on sunny days, the snow-covered range is white against clear blue sky. If you would like to hear some of the quotations on the wall panels in this area, press 1, 2, 3. If you would like to move to the next major exhibit, return to the middle window alcove, the one without a table. With the windows behind you, go 16 feet to the mini-theater with a five-minute video about what brings people to Mount Rainier. As you approach the theater's doorway, 
you will hear an automatic greeting to confirm your location. As you enter the theater, stay to the left and then move to the seating area on your right. If the video and its audio description is not playing when you enter, it will start soon. That's one, two, three to hear quotations, or if you go directly to the mini theater, the description will play automatically when the video plays. At this location, you may enter the mini theater with a five minute video about what brings people to Mount Rainier. As you enter the theater, stay to the left and then move to the seating area on your right. If the video and its audio description is not playing when you enter, it will start soon. If you would prefer instead to explore the fearsome forces of change exhibit that begins to the right of the mini theater's doorway going in and on the left coming out, press 124.